Okay, we're going to look at Luke chapter 22. We're going to start uh, from verse 66. So find Luke 22 and then starting in verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demands. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Um, Over a number of Sundays, we have been looking at the events um, leading up to uh, Jesus' crucifixion, his death on the cross. Uh, We've been looking at at the main question, why did Jesus die? Uh, A pretty fundamental question, really, to understand, to get our heads around. Why did Jesus die? Today we're going to look at a slightly different but also absolutely vital question, uh, which is this. Who is Jesus? 
And it's possible when pre- uh, preparing to preach to get a little bit carried away, um, but I'm going to. This is the most important question for all of us to be absolutely convinced of in our lives. This is the most important thing, the most important question to answer, to be sure of. If you're saved, if you're a Christian, listen up. If you're not, then again, this is a vitally important question for you to look at. Jesus here is standing on trial. He is in the dock. That trial centers around really who he says he is. Luke as it were, he doesn't necessarily give a full transcript of the whole uh, court process or the trial that took place. He kind of cuts to the chase and he shows this is the issue. This is what really decided the outcome of this trial. Who is he? If you are the Christ, tell us. Are you then the Son of God? He says he's the King of the Jews. Who is he? Who is this man? Jesus is standing on trial. We've had this um, prophetic encouragement earlier on as we were worshipping God. Look at me, Jesus is saying. Look at me. Who is he? What is his identity? His whole trial and the reason he goes to the cross and dies hangs upon his identity. And therefore, it's something for us to be absolutely persuaded of. But there are a number of confused views uh, that are shown in this trial. We're going to look at a few of them before turning to who Jesus really is. Number one... To some, uh, Jesus appears to be uh, a troublemaker uh, to the chief priests, to the rulers, the religious authorities that are, are gathering together, this council of elders that meets at daybreak. Um, they're trying to come up with some way of justifying uh, Jesus' execution. To him, to them rather, Jesus is a dangerous zealot who is leading people astray. He's a threat. He's a scruffy rebel in their eyes who's not who's leading them away from what they would regard as the true faith what they would regard as true uh, religion we see that in a number of places so in chapter 23 and verse 2 it says there and they began to accuse him saying we have found this man subverting our nation he opposes payment of taxes to caesar and claims to be christ a king The Jews know, the Jewish authorities know, that they do not have uh, authority um, to kill uh, or execute by crucifixion. Um, That's what they would particularly like to do to Jesus. And they know, therefore, that they have to go to to the Roman authorities. They have to go to Pilate, as we'll see in a little while. And therefore, they have to come up with some convincing grounds that would justify not only the death penalty, but the death on on, on a cross. Um, and so they say this, we found this man subverting the nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. That will probably kind of ring an alarm bell um, in Pilate's ears and claims to be Christ a king. Well, that, that sounds even worse. So here he is, this pretender, this troublemaker, this rebel, this terrorist who needs dealing with by crucifixion. We see later on when um, Pilate responds to their accusations in verse 14, uh, Pilate called together the chief priests, the, ruler and, uh, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. He's a troublemaker. He's a rebel. He's trouble. 
that was what the religious authorities deemed to be the case. And what's remarkable here is that those religious authorities, these high priests, teachers of the law, elders amongst the people, they are ceremonially worshipping God at this very point in time in the temple, a stone's throw away from where they're trying to have Jesus executed. Their religion involves certain external uh, sacrifices and acts of worship. That's all taking place. They need to make sure that that's happening in order to kind of satisfy the requirements of God's law as they understand it. At the very same time, they're trying to have Jesus killed. They're trying to make sure that he's executed. Religion likes ceremony. It likes ritual. It likes the idea that whatever else I do in my life, as long as I do A, B, and C, as long as I perform certain sacrifices, as long as I do certain duties, as long as I make sure that I go along to the temple at the right time, as long as I make sure that when people see me, they see someone who is respectable and, and uh, uh, above reproach, then, then that makes me okay, that makes me right with God, I'm fine. Religion likes to try and get into um, God's good books in those ways. Religion draws us to try and, and, and want to be in control. It likes the status quo, it likes the predictable, it likes to maintain the system. Religion doesn't necessarily want things to change a great deal. No, we've, we've got things just as we like them now. This is our system. This is how we relate to God. This is how we kind of get ourselves into God's good books. We need to maintain that system in order for God to still be pleased with us. There might be other things that he doesn't approve of, like trying to kill his son, but that's okay because as long as we do this, as long as we go to the temple, as long as we perform our religious duties, we're okay with God. Only trouble is, religion cannot save. Uh, religion doesn't make us right with God. So to the religious, Jesus just seems like a troublemaker because he's come along. Um, increasingly, he's, he's popular with uh, the kind of the lowly of society. Not only is he popular, but his teaching doesn't quite sit with the understanding these religious authorities have. Not only are they slightly questioning his teaching, but they don't like what he does. And some of the things he's been doing, um, we see when he arrives um, into Jerusalem a few chapters earlier, in chapter 19, verse 45, it says there, uh, then he entered the temple, speaking of Jesus, he, he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So he's teaching. People are discovering what he has to say. And say wow, he's, someone, he's teaching with authority and he's teaching in a way that kind of engages the masses for some, that is a threat that rocks the boat. He's upsetting the apple cart. He's wanting to change how things are done. He's seeing that the way things are done are corrupt. 
and don't reflect the will of God and the desire of God. Things have drifted away from God's plans and God's purposes. Jesus is saying, it's time to change. The religious authorities are saying, no, it isn't. You are a peasant carpenter. You dare lecture us on what's appropriate. We are trying to have you killed. That's what religion leads to. We've been hearing a fair bit recently about how new wine uh, is poured into um, a new uh, wineskin. If it's poured into an old, crusty wineskin, that wineskin will split. The wine gets ruined. In effect, that's what's been happening here. But actually, that's the lesson of church history all through the ages. Maybe people rediscover something of God's word, something of God's truth, what it means to be saved, fresh enthusiasm, zeal, understanding, faith in God, love for the scriptures, people realize, okay, something's got to change because the way we have been doing things just doesn't fit with the revelation God's revealed with us. And so something new starts. It bursts out with life and zeal and faith. Over time, perhaps in humanity generally, in us there's a tendency to then maybe want to drift back to a religious default position no longer wow we're getting hold of this and it's changing our lives it's no we've we've got a system to maintain don't you understand we've got traditions they've got to be kept in place you do it like this you do it like this and when that happens when god wants to pour new wine out something splits something breaks because it's not prepared for what God wants to do. It doesn't mean that every new fad, every new uh, vaguely spiritual idea uh, that comes to the church is a good idea. Sometimes it's appropriate to say, no, we're holding the line. That doesn't match up with what we see in Scripture. We are weighing everything by what we see in the Word. So we don't just chase every random idea or every kind of new and apparently anointed um, practice. But it does mean that we want to be a people who've learned that lesson and who are fleeing away from the, the default position of just getting into religion, just getting into doing things in an external way. So for some, Jesus is just a troublemaker. Is that who he really is? No. So what about us? Do we view him in that way or do we view him through religious glasses? Are we tempted to think of a life with God as something that is basically about going through the motions. Do the necessary external things. You will therefore be pleasing to God. You're fine. Do whatever you want with your life, but just make sure you're at church. Just make sure you read your Bible. Just make sure you dress smart and you'll be uh, on God's side. Jesus, the troublemaker, that was who he was according to the chief priests and teachers of the law. According to Herod, uh, Jesus was a laughing stock, a circus act, an entertainer, a jester, more of a magician than a messiah, interesting but ultimately not important. It begins in verse 8 and it seems, oh, this, looks, this looks hopeful, it says there, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see uh, see him perform some miracle. But there's something going on beneath the surface here because only a few verses later, when the Jewish rulers and authorities, they've been bringing their accusations, 
It says this in verse 11. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. In other words, there, was, there seemed to be an interest, but it didn't go very far. And it, it ultimately just gave way to mockery and ridicule. Now, there is something going on beneath the surface. What, what accounts for that apparent change? Well, let's have a look in Luke 9. Luke 9, verses uh, 7. Not that long ago, Herod encountered an anointed prophet who challenged him with the word of God. It concerns his relationship with his brother's wife. John the Baptist was saying, that's not right. Herod says, I don't care, and beheads him. Um, So we see there in in Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. He was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. It's referring to Jesus. He's caught wind of Jesus. This sounds like someone I know. Someone, in fact, that I had beheaded. And uh, so he's perplexed. He's greatly worried. This guy probably doesn't want another anointed prophet coming into his life and saying, hang on a minute, things have got to change. That's not good in the area of his relationships or maybe in any other area. So he wants to see Jesus. He wants to suss out who is this guy but the background is, is he's worried. He's anxious about this. He's perplexed. Who is he? Who is this man who's causing, up, who's causing such a stir? Herod, a powerful ruler, perhaps therefore has the attitude, hang on a minute, I am my own God. I'm the king of my own destiny. I'll make my life what I want it to be. And so I don't want another authority figure threatening my right to do what I want and how I want. That's in the background. That's in his thinking, I would suggest. What comes out, therefore, is a type of defense mechanism. It's it's humor and ridicule to put someone down who otherwise might actually want to change my life. Jesus, not the king of the Jews not the Son of God, it's easier to think Jesus must be some kind of fruitcake, some kind of magician. There's some things he can do that are quite impressive, but he's not really anyone to follow. And therefore, if we see his, his death through those kind of glasses, if you like, his death was either a foolish mistake or some kind of brave and elaborate stunt that went disastrously wrong. Could have been impressive, but actually it just ends up looking tragically daft. Who is this man? He's just a laughing stock. He's he's a circus act. He's an entertainer. He's a magician. He's impressive in some ways, but basically a bit of a joke. So the question that that brings to us is, well, who should be king? For Herod, 
It was himself. He wants to be in charge. He wants to maintain control, as it were, of his own destiny. He wants to maybe retain control of his relationship with his brother's wife. That's where it all began. That's where the trouble started with John the Baptist. That's why he beheaded John the Baptist. Now Jesus is coming. Is he going to bring some similar challenge? And sometimes for us, that can still be the case. For those of us who are saved, Jesus, he's, he's wonderful. He's my, he's my hero. Is he my king? Is he my Lord? Does he shape everything in my life? Or just a little area of it? Um, my relationships with other people, is that something that I uh, just want to, to guard myself? Maybe we can view Jesus as... Um, kind of the ultimate party pooper who doesn't want us to have our cake and eat it and so think well maybe um, yeah, he's, he's good, he's impressive, he's got some great ethical teachings uh, he can do miracles um, but I need to control my, my personal relationships myself um, I, I don't want God to take away something that I really enjoy and value uh, and maybe God just wants to scupper something that I, I really cherish and, and, and find important but if like Herod you're married to your brother's, sister, your brother's wife, uh, or whatever the equivalent might be, um, then ultimately what, what is best? To pursue a life where we're in charge but just leads to worry, anxiety, fretfulness? Or is it best to relinquish our life to him and say, no, you be the king. You be the ruler. You're my savior. You're my king as well. And I want to do things your way. So who should be king? So Jesus was viewed by some as a troublemaker, by some as a laughingstock. By Pilate, he was regarded as a nuisance, as an inconvenience. The inconvenience was this. Pilate could see that Jesus was innocent of all the charges set before him. It comes across loud and clear in a few places, so Um, Chapter 23, verse 4. Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Look on to verses 14 and 15. Again, Pilate said to them, "You You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he has sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing deserving death. As attention starts to build, uh, in verse 22, it says, For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. So, Pilate is fully persuaded that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate isn't just um, sharing his opinion, like you might have a chat with a friend. He's... In this situation, he's the judge. And back in verse 4, he, de- he declares, he makes the verdict. He declares the outcome of this trial. He's innocent. What are you on? But the people come back at him. I mean, can you imagine that? In a court hearing today, the judge announces after the whole trial has been heard, all the witnesses have been brought forth, the judge, um, hearing uh, all the evidence set before him, says, innocent. But people in the gallery, start to argue back and say, no, 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 he's inciting the people to rebellion. He's terrible. He's a troublemaker. No, no, he's, I'm saying, 
He's innocent. No, really, he's a troublemaker. Oh, okay then. What a tremendous example of, of pressure, of compromise. Pilate is a man who is hugely under pressure. Boils down to this. Does he send an innocent man to death or does he release Jesus but then incur the anger of all the Jewish authorities? And if he does that, how would the Roman masters, how would his Roman masters react if a riot takes place in this unruly city of Jerusalem? What's going to happen to Pilate? What's going to happen to his job? What's going to happen to his future? How easy is his life going to be if he says, no, he's innocent and he's released? Pilate makes the right assessment but lacks the courage to follow it through. He ignores his convictions and gives in to the majority decision. He is more concerned about his career uh, than his convictions about Jesus. And so for us, what question does that raise to us? Well, is there some way in which God is trying to get your attention. If God is on your case, then the implications of giving your life to Jesus and following him, kind of relinquishing control and saying, God, all I am, all I have is yours. Please forgive me from all my sin. I want to live life your way and I want to be with you for eternity in heaven. The implications of that decision can seem costly. It can seem there's a, there's a lot to lose. My relationships might get affected. My lifestyle. I, I'm not sure I want those things to change. Also, I might come into um, a situation where now the majority don't agree with what I believe. And there'll be any number of us who know the pressure to compromise in some way. Pressure to follow the crowd. Pressure at school. Pressure at the workplace. What is it that you would have to do to advance in your career? Do you have to give anything up? Do you have to, do you have to give up beliefs? Do you have to kind of go soft on your faith in order to advance in your career? Is there, just, is there an underlying jokey humor that undermines faith. It's very pressure then. It's a lot of pressure to then stick your head above the parapet and say, I'm going to church on Sunday. I believe Jesus is my savior. There's pressure. Pressure in the neighborhood. Disciples of Jesus are unlikely, at least for now, to be in the majority. So there's pr pressure to conform to give in, to avoid sticking our necks out for what we know is right. Daily, those who follow Jesus run the risk of being misunderstood, rejected, overlooked, and laughed at. So the implications to following Jesus, they can seem costly. But, I think we can see how Pilate went the wrong way in the dilemma that he was facing. The implications might seem costly, but it's worse to resist God and resist Jesus and have a life that is fulfilled in him for danger of being laughed at or pressured or getting even an angry response 
from those who don't agree. So Jesus, is he a troublemaker? Is he a laughingstock? Or is he a nuisance? Well, who does Jesus say that he is? And really the issue boils down to that. The religious leaders misguided, misinterpreting the scriptures, misunderstanding who Jesus is and what that meant. Herod, again, just misunderstanding, doesn't want his own life to be threatened by a, a, a different, a new type of king coming into his life. Or Pilate, man, this, this Jesus is awkward. He challenges my convictions and I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm in a massive uh, situation. I'm in a big dilemma. Who does Jesus say he is? Well, as the trial unfolds, there are a number of titles um, that are used to describe Jesus. He's asked in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, Jesus accepts the use of that term, Christ. can also mean uh, Messiah. The Jewish people were believing in a special and anointed one who would come and who would deliver them from all their troubles and would probably be a great kind of military hero. Um, there'd be great kind of uh, victory. The nation would do really well under this Messiah. So Jesus accepts the, the use of that term he is the anointed one he is the messiah and yet he knows that they misunderstand what it really means he accepts the use of that term he's not here using it to describe himself in an overt way he says in effect he's saying well yes you you say that i am um likewise i say then are you the son of god similarly he says well you are right in saying i am he's not denying that that's the appropriate title uh, but he knows that that can just be a term that at the time was being wildly uh, misunderstood um, and, and, and therefore he, he didn't primarily use that um, in, in this gospel account. Uh, also later on he said, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say. But who does Jesus say he is? All those terms are appropriate. There's another one for us to look at. In verse 69, in the midst of his trial, Jesus says, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. The Son of Man. Well, what does that mean? Because on the face of it, that could appear to be suggesting that Jesus was just an ordinary guy. I'm the Son of Man. Don't confuse me with the Son of God. No, I'm the Son of Man. I'm, I'm just like Son of Adam. I'm, I'm Son of Humanity. I'm just a guy like you. I'm totally ordinary. There's nothing special about me. Is that what Son of Man means? In which case, what Jesus says will be highly confusing. Or does it mean something else? And to see what it means, we need to look at a prophecy that was given by Daniel in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, hundreds of years earlier when God's people were in exile. Daniel received a vision. And in that vision, he saw a divine figure coming with the clouds of heaven who was entitled to enter into the very presence of the holy God, who was rightly given authority by God and was rightfully worshipped by all people. Now the Jews knew in their law, God had said, there's only one God. Only worship the one true God. Then when we see in Daniel chapter 7, um, the words there, from verse 13 onwards. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus knows the scriptures. He knows Daniel's vision. And so when he wants to identify himself, he's saying, I am the son of man. I am that divine figure who equal in status and essence to God. Not just some ordinary guy with a special touch from God. No, this is God himself because he's worthy of everybody's worship and he rightfully receives authority from God. And then as Jesus says here, he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Seated at the right hand in a place of honor with God himself. Now, if the queen came in today, we would, we'd probably all stand up. I went to a school where if the teacher came into the room, all the pupils stood up. You didn't stay sat down. It was a mark of, uh, of, of respect um, for the teacher who came into the class. don't know if that happens today. If the queen were to come and visit City Church Sheffield, um, I wouldn't sit down to shake her hand. Um, I, I think I would uh, stand, I would bow, uh, and I would be very... I'd be a good little boy. Um, <laughs> um, so for, for Jesus to say, I'm the son of God, and I'm going to be seated at God's right hand. Jesus, the son of man, is in the place of ultimate authority and respect with God. He is God fully and fully man. And he's predicting here Something that is absolutely astounding. Remember how we, we began. Jesus is, is in the dock. Jesus is on trial. This whole bogus process is weighed against him. What's the issue that his trial hangs on is who he is, who he's claiming to be. Jesus, therefore, in effect, convicts himself by saying, it's right that you say I'm the Christ. It's right that you say I'm the Son of God. It's right that you say um, that I'm the King of the Jews. And also, I'm the Son of Man. He's convicted because of his own words in this bogus trial. But from now on, the tables are turned a dramatic change is being, is, is being predicted, that Jesus is going to be seated at God's right hand. He is going to die on the cross, but praise be to God, he's going to be raised, he's going to be resurrected from the tomb, and then after that he's going to ascend to the Father's right hand. He has authority from God, which he will exercise, and he has authority over the people who are presiding over his trial. And so it appears like Jesus is in the dock. It appears that Jesus is on trial. Who do you say you are, really? And all these apparent authority figures are putting forth their views. Is he a troublemaker? Is he a laughingstock? Is he a nuisance? What do we think? What matters is our opinion. Well, Jesus says there's a time coming when actually the next time you see me, I will be the judge, and you will be in the dock. And the issue is not, what have you done? How 
good are you? Do you have enough uh, brownie points in your collection to, to come into glory and enjoy my kingdom? The issue will be, who do you say I am? Is he a laughingstock? Is he a troublemaker? Is he a nuisance? No, he's the son of man. Luke wants us to ponder these things and to ponder whose side are we on? What is our view of Jesus? There can be so much confusion. There can be so much confusion because there can be so much talk about Jesus. But talking about Jesus isn't the same as knowing who he really is. There are many cults and they would um, say they're following Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses, um, Mormons, Christian scientists, Christadelphians, a lot of groups, a lot of religious groups who claim to know who Jesus is and claim to follow him. But those groups, in their entirety, reduce Jesus. He's not the Son of Man. He's not equal with God. He's not the judge over all things. He's maybe something a little bit less than that. And as soon as Jesus becomes less than Almighty Son of Man, then we have no salvation. We have no hope of a life with Him. We have no forgiveness. Religion cannot save us from our sins, but the Son of Man forgives us our sins. Religion cannot save the lost, and often religion doesn't want to save the lost. The Son of Man came to rescue, came to seek and save the lost came to rescue people who knew, who know they need saving. When I'm the king of my own life, then the destiny of my life is probably worry, confusion, one variety of disaster after another. The son of man is a good king, not to be distrusted, not to be wary of, not to be feared in the sense of what is he about to do next? I have to guard myself, I must stay in control. He's the king, and he is a good king. But he is a king. He comes, he says, I'm the son of man, I have authority. I want you to live your life my way. When we're persecuted, or when we're under pressure to compromise, we have these encouraging words, with Luke 12, verse 8, and with these, we'll close. Jesus says, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the son of man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. What a wonderful thought. If you are pressured, if you're aware in your life of people laughing at your beliefs in Jesus, if you are persecuted for standing up for what you regard as true, that the Lord Jesus is God incarnate, our Savior, our Redeemer, the Lord Christ, our Messiah, we might know the ridicule of having people humorously disagree with us. But because the Son of Man is ultimately the judge, before the angels of God, you and I will be recognized, welcomed into heaven, where our awesome Savior says to the angels, Oh, do you remember? Here's the one. Here's the, here's the girl. Here's the guy that I was telling you about. Here's the way, under intense pressure and scrutiny, he stood up, she stood up for me in the classroom at school, 
in the workplace. This guy over here, he decided even that he would rather suffer the shame and ridicule of, of, of saying he belonged with me than going for that promotion or whatever, but just having to conveniently sideline his beliefs. Here's this guy, here's this girl, and they've stood up for me. And now, before the angels of God in heaven, the Son of Man acknowledges you, acknowledges us. Let's pray together.